If you were to itemize the most significant events in human history, what would be near the top of your list? Someone might prioritize the discovery of fire, the invention of the wheel, or the formation of written language. And certainly all of those are monumental in their significance in human history. Still someone else may say it's the discovery of electricity, the invention of the steamboat, the engine, aircraft, air conditioning. And someone might say, where would we be without the creation of the World Wide Web? Certainly you would not get any argument that all of those are significant events in human history. But if you were to ask me, what are the two most significant events in human history? They are the fall of man and the redemption of man. Everything else pales in comparison to those two events. Today, we continue our study of the New Testament book of Romans. We find ourselves in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. It's to that passage I invite you to give your attention. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today, I want to read in your hearing, Romans chapter 5. I'll begin at verse 12. I'll conclude at verse 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses. Even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned throughout that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of the righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, to the preaching, to the understanding and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. Now, friends, from the very outset, I want to do my best to summarize the passage I just read for you. I want to summarize it in one 
statement. The summary sentence would go something like this. Just as the one trespass by the one man brought death to all mankind, so the one act of righteousness by the one God-man brings life to all who believe. This passage is a comparative contrast between Adam and Jesus. There are many theologians who come to this passage and describe it as the discussion between the first Adam and the second Adam. What the first Adam lost, the second Adam retrieved. What the first Adam messed up, the second Adam restored. What Adam did in the Garden of Eden, Jesus corrected through the cross of Calvary and through his empty tomb. The Apostle Paul is comparing and contrasting the first Adam and the second Adam. He says in verse 14 that Adam was a pattern. That word pattern means type. He was a pattern or type of the one to come. The one to come is Jesus Christ. So in this passage, Paul is saying, I'm going to compare and contrast Adam with Jesus. Now, when you hear that, the first thing that comes to mind is, how are Adam and Jesus alike, and how are they different? This morning, I want to give to you uh, two similarities and two differences when it comes to comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus. The similarities are these. Both Adam and Jesus were literal historical figures. The second similarity is that both Adam and Jesus are representatives of humanity and by their action, they impact all mankind. Let's try to unpack those statements. First and foremost, the primary similarity between Adam and Jesus is that they were both literal historical figures. Adam really was the first person to be plopped on the planet. Adam really did live in the Garden of Eden. There are many today who try to make Adam into a myth, somehow a fabrication of creation. But I want to tell you that Adam was as real as you are real. Adam was fully made as God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a human being. Adam was real. The reason you know he's real is because what Adam messed up took a real Savior to remedy. Jesus is not a a mythological Messiah. No, he is a real Messiah. And so because he is real, that gives evidence that Adam must have been real. Because Adam's mistakes were real and transferred down to every generation. And Jesus is equal in his literal historical figure. So Jesus really did live on planet Earth. He lived during the days of Caesar Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All you have to do is look back in the history books and it will tell you that Jesus was real, a literal historical figure. And all you have to do is look in the history book of the Bible and you'll discover that Adam was real. 
Both Adam and Jesus are similar in the fact that they are literal historical figures. But secondly, they are also similar in the fact that they both represent the human race. And by their actions, they impact all of humanity. Adam was placed into the Garden of Eden to take care of it and tend it. The Lord gave Adam one command. The one command was, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. I'm sure that command was something that Adam remembered, recited. I'm sure it's something that he shared with the love of his life, Eve. He probably told her verbatim what God had said in that one command. Honey, we are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but we cannot eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, for when we eat of it, we will surely die. The way you know that Eve knew full well the command of God is because when the serpent tempted them, it was Eve who responded with an affirmation of the command and the instructions of the Lord. The tempter came up and he said, did God really say that you cannot eat from that tree? The tempter has always been one who tried to, tries to put doubts in your mind regarding the authority and the reliability of God's word and his instruction. And Eve responded, oh no, we can eat from any tree in the garden, but we cannot eat of that tree. She added her own commentary, and most of us give our own interpretation of what God's word actually means. She says, we can't even touch it lest we die. And the serpent responded once again with doubt, trying to erode away the foundation of the reliability of Scripture, reliability of God's word. And the devil said, you will not surely die, for God knows that if you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened and you will be God. There's the temptation. It's the temptation inside of all of us to be our own God, to call the shots, to be the one in charge, to be the one who establishes the boundaries, the rules, the regulations. And the devil said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be God. When she saw that it was pleasing to the eye, good for food, she took it and she ate it. She also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Don't ever think that Adam in this exchange was somehow in the far distance taming a tiger or lassoing a giraffe. No, he was right there beside his wife. The biblical author is always consistent that the, this, this, this original sin it came from Adam, not Eve. There have been some who tried to refute that and say, but wait a minute, it's Eve who first took the fruit and she bit it. I mean, isn't she the one who's responsible? Oh, my friend, the first sin was not the biting of the fruit. The first sin was the stupefied silence of Adam. He abdicated his role and responsibility as a spiritual leader of his home. He knew God, he knew God's truth, he had communicated God's truth to his wife, and in that moment when a push comes to shove, he said nothing in silence. He just stood there and he allowed his wife to go down a path of disobedience and then he willfully joined her down that path. Paul says in our passage, 
that because of the disobedience of Adam, sin entered the world. And the ultimate earthly consequence of sin is death. And in our passage, Paul declares that because of Adam, death came to all mankind because all sinned. Death came to all mankind because all sinned. There is a chilling four-word phrase that's repeated in the genealogy of Adam that goes from one generation to the next. You read in Genesis chapter 5 where it says that Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Seth lived 931 years and then he died. Enosh lived 905 years and then he died. You get all the way down to the bottom of the genealogy and it even says of Methuselah, Methuselah for crying out loud, even Methuselah who lived 969 years and then he died. It's a four word phrase. It is chilling, it's repetitive. It is one that really uh, strikes us in the gut but the hard reality of life is that for all of us, then we die. The reason we die is because we are descendants of Adam. Paul says that because of the disobedience of Adam, sin entered the world and death came to mankind because all sinned. When he says that phrase, all sinned, I don't think that Paul is just regurgitating the same argument he offered in Romans chapter 3. For all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Certainly, don't misunderstand me. All of us have sinned. All of us do sin. All of us continue to sin. All of us are worthy of separation from God. All of us are deserving of death. Don't misunderstand me. But when Paul says in Romans 5 that all have sinned, he's not just saying the second stanza of the same song that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't think he's repeating what he said in Romans chapter 1. For in Romans chapter 1, it is the apostle who itemizes a laundry list of sins that the people of the first century were guilty of. And if you recall, when we were there, I made the same statement that what happened in the first century still happens today, some 2,000 years later. I mean, two centuries have passed, but not a whole lot has changed. But I don't think that Paul is making the same argument that all of us are sinners. I think that when he uses that two-word phrase in our passage that all sinned, I think what he's saying is that in Adam, all of us sinned. That in Adam, every single one of us sinned. That at some level, uh, you could make the argument that we were with Adam in his sin. You could also make the argument that had we been in Adam's spot, we too would have sinned. All of us have sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. Sin entered the world because of one man's transgress, uh, trespass, and because of his transgression, because of that one man's action. Death came to all mankind. Now, many theologians refer to this as original sin. That all of us, because we're descendants of Adam, we all are possessed by original sin. And because of that, 
we die. I remember 18 years ago when Molly Grace was born. She is our firstborn. And we were first-time parents and we were elated. We were so happy, I thought everybody else needed to be just as happy as we were. I remember, um, I think it was the day after that Molly Grace was born. Jane Ellen was there in the hospital bed. All the grandparents were standing around and together we were peering into the bassinet. And there was Molly Grace, less than 24 hours old. She was asleep. And for some reason, I remember saying, look at that beautiful bundle of sin. (laughs) Timing is everything. That might not have been the best time to make that statement. I remember that my mother-in-law took exception to my phrase. She spun around and she said, what do you mean she's a bundle of sin? She hasn't done anything wrong. She's less than 24 hours old. It was at that moment when I sat and thought to myself, why did I make that statement? Is this the right time to have this theological conversation? Here I am 18 years later and and I, I still affirm what I said, that Molly Grace was, and she still is, a beautiful bundle of sin. And I made that statement, and I stand by it, because it's, it's who she is. It's who we all are. But I also understand what my mother-in-law was saying. She was saying, she's less than a day old. She has not done anything. I mean, Molly Grace is advanced beyond her years, but even at one day old, she wasn't speaking. So she hadn't said anything wrong. She was just sleeping. She hadn't done anything wrong. I don't know the thought capacity of a 24-hour baby, but I'm assuming that she probably wasn't having vile thoughts in that bassinet. So I understand what, the, what my mother-in-law was saying, that, that she's not done anything to label her as a sinner. But friend, if, if we are just sinners because of the sin we commit, if we die a sinner's death just because and only because of our particular sins, then there should never be a miscarriage. And there should never be infant mortality. If it's true that we die because of our own personal sin, then there never should be a miscarriage. There should never be an infant, one who's a day old, two days old, three days old, I don't know how far out you go, but just a, a small infant, that infant should never die. If, if death is only connected to that person's particular sin. No, what Adam says, what Paul says is that, is that we all die because Adam sinned. And in Adam, all mankind die because all of us are sinners. Before I even left the hospital, God gave an illustration of original sin. It had to be later that day, maybe the next day, when the nurse came in and 
she could see all the excitement. I mean, we had the balloons uh, because I'm a Baptist preacher. We had bubblegum cigars, not real ones. And I was giving out those pink bubblegum cigars left and right, right? Because everybody needed to be excited because our darling daughter was born. The nurse walked in and she said, I wish everybody was this happy. And I said, why are they not? Tell me who they are. I'll give them a pink cigar. She proceeded to tell us a story that today she would not be able to say because of HIPAA laws, but way back in antiquity, 18 years ago, she was able to share the story. She said, yesterday, your wife came in and gave birth to a daughter. Yesterday, another young lady came in and gave birth to a son. She said, what we didn't realize is that that other lady was addicted to opium. You and I would call that heroin. Somehow that escaped our observation. And now that baby who's only a day old, that baby is craving a drug that's going to kill him. Friends, I tell you, every balloon in our room deflated. Talk about a sucker punch. And I thought to myself, that's not fair. That's not right. How is it possible that that baby comes into this world craving a drug that's going to kill him? He didn't make a choice to accept that drug pulsating through his veins. He, 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 never, he never took willfully one hit of heroin. He never went behind a dumpster in a dark alley to meet up with a drug dealer to get his next fix. He never rearranged his schedule just so he could have that drug in his body. He never did anything wrong. Why is that baby gonna die? And then the Spirit of God tapped me on the shoulder. That is original sin. He didn't do anything to deserve it. He just inherited it from his first parent, Adam. He's a descendant of Adam, just like you and just like me. And because of Adam, sin entered the world and death came to all mankind because all sinned. Friend, you and I have an addiction towards sin that will kill us. We have a craving, we have an inclination, we have a desire towards rebellion, and that will kill us. And if we don't do anything about our addiction to sin, it will forever separate us from the love of God Almighty, and God is just and right in doing so. I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking to yourself, Pastor, that's just not fair. I mean, how is it? How is it that, that we could say that Adam is a representative of the human race, and because he's a representative of the human race, by his actions, it impacts all of humanity. That's not fair. I didn't elect Adam, I didn't vote for him. I didn't select him. I didn't appoint him. I didn't choose him to be my rep. Why can't I just be my own rep? Why can't I just be evaluated on the merit of my own work, my own decisions? Why is it that, that I am susceptible to death just because I'm a descendant of Adam? That doesn't seem fair. And my friend, I want to tell you that the fact that Adam is our human representative is more than fair. I would even say it is gracious. Let's think about this just for a second. 
Who among us, including Adam, has a shot of obedience? Adam had one command to follow. One stinking command. I'm sorry, one glorious command. It was one command. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, just not the tree in the middle of the garden. You got that? And I'm sure that as God communicated that to Adam, he said that when and if you eat of that tree, you will die. And I'm sure that in good southern vernacular, he said, y'all, he's not talking just about Adam, but also Adam and Eve and all of their descendants. Friends, if I know that my choice is going to be harmful to my kids, if I know that my choice is going to be harmful to my grandchildren, that's a great motivator for me to be obedient. Amen? In the very same way, Adam, he knows that if he eats of this fruit, not only will he die and Eve will die, but all of his children and grandchildren, all the descendants of Adam. Also, let's go one step further. Adam, at some point, had a pre-fallen condition. You and I never have a pre-fallen condition. We are completely and totally sinful. The the sin nature has tainted everything inside of us. But there was a time when Adam, when he did not have a pre-fallen condition. Let's go even one step further. Adam at some point lived in a perfect environment. You and I never live in a perfect environment. Our environment, everything we see, everything we touch, everything we smell, everything we think, everything we experience is completely tainted and marred by sin. But Adam, there was a point and a time when he lived in a perfect environment. He was in a pre-fallen condition. His faculties, his awareness was so fine-tuned off the charts, he even knew the footsteps of God as God walked in the cool of the day. I mean, he was so aware of his surroundings, and Adam fell. I would make the argument that Adam has one step up on us because of the things that I just mentioned, and even Adam fell, and he sinned. When Paul says that all have sinned, he is saying that even if we were in Adam's spot, we too would have been guilty of sin. Now, I told you that these are still similarities between Adam and Jesus. Not only are they literal historical figures, but secondly, they are representatives of the human race, and by their actions, they impact all of humanity. And so I've already articulated how Adam was a, an a representative of the human race, but so is Jesus. Because remember my statement, one trespass by one man brings death to all mankind, but one act of righteousness by the one God-man brings life to all who believe. Jesus is a representative of the human race. 
And because of his act of righteousness, what is his one act of righteousness? It is Jesus who went to the cross. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth through the birth canal of a virgin girl. He lived a perfect life. He never did anything wrong. And Jesus went to Calvary's hill bearing your sin and mine. And Jesus died in your place and my place. That one act of righteousness brings justification, not just the undoing of Adam's sin, but the declaration that you and I are innocent both now and forevermore. And because of the one act of righteousness, we have been justified both now and forever in Christ before God. And Jesus died our death. He was placed to a borrowed grave. And on the third day, he was raised from the dead. And the moment that any of us believe and trust that Jesus is our rightful representative of the human race, then we go from death unto life. Jesus is our representative. Now let me ask you this, is that fair? Is it fair for Jesus to die for your sins and mine? I'll tell you this much, the person who complains about the fact that Adam is the representative and that's not fair, never complains that Jesus is the representative and that not being fair. Friend, in both cases, God is being so gracious. He's being so generous to us. So the two similarities between Adam and Jesus is that both were literal historical figures. And second, they were both representatives of the human race. And by their action, they impact all of humanity. But there are differences between Adam and Jesus. Let me quickly give you two. The two differences come in their action, number one, and number two, their effect. The action and the effect. Now let's unpack that just for a second. In verse 15, Paul says that the action of Adam is called a trespass. The word trespass, it means to cross the line. If you have a sign on your property that says no trespassing, what are you saying? Don't cross this line. And Adam was guilty of being one who trespassed because he crossed the line. It also means the breaking of a particular command. Remember, Adam had one command. In the Torah, God gave 613 commands to his people. So Adam had one command and he broke it. He was guilty of trespassing. But the action of Jesus, the action of Jesus, according to verse 15, is called a gift. A gift is far different than a trespass. In fact, all throughout the passage, Paul will speak about how much more Jesus did. That the damage that, that, uh, that Adam did was recovered in a much more greater way in Jesus. So that the condemnation came by the one trespass. But the gift was given after billions of blunders by billions of people. There were many trespasses by the time Jesus came. And Jesus he restored everything. So Jesus gives the gift. The word gift in the ancient text is charisma, from which we get the English word charisma. It's the same word. It means a grace gift. And Jesus is that grace gift. He's the gift that's given to us by God. I love when I get to talk to young children when they're 
right there uh, on the edge of becoming a Christian. Some of you moms and dads will bring your children into the office and and for the children, it feels like they're going to the principal's office when they go to the pastor's office. But we come in and try to make things comfortable and we just try to engage in conversation. Usually, I'll walk through the Romans road with the child. Eight-year-old may be seated in front of me. And when we start coming to a passage about the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord, I'll ask the question, do you ever get any gifts? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I get gifts. When do you get gifts? Well, my birthday and Christmas. If I make good grades, I sometimes get a gift. And sometimes for no reason at all will come the response. Well, who gives you those gifts? Well, mom and dad and the really good ones come from grandma and papa. Do they have to give you a gift? No, they don't have to. Well, Johnny, why do they give you a gift? He'll sit there and think about it for a second. And then he'll say, well, I guess it's because they love me. Okay, Johnny, if your parents and your grandparents give you gifts, sometimes for no good reason, and they do that because they love you, why do you think God gave you the gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord? And the light bulb goes off, and they say, because God loves me. Friend, that's exactly right. The reason that Jesus came was to be a grace gift, one that you cannot earn, one that you cannot pay back, one that you do not deserve. It's simply a gift from a loving, great God who wants you to have eternal life. And the only way that that's made possible is through faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. So Adam and Jesus are different in the sense of their action. Adam's action was a trespass. The action of Jesus is a gift. But there's a second way in which Adam and Jesus are different, and it's the effect of their action. The effect of the action of Adam is devastating condemnation. The effect of the gift of Jesus is glorious salvation. Friends, you can't get more opposite than those two effects. The effect of Adam's action is devastation, but the effect of the action of Jesus is salvation. Because of one man's trespass, death came to all mankind. For most of us, we would say the cycle of life goes something like this. We're born, we grow, we decline, and we die. And while that's normal, that's not natural. You were created for immortality. You were created to live forever. And the fact that the natural cycle goes from birth to growth to decline to death, it seems so natural to us, it seems so normal for us, but it is not natural. That's not the way God intended. Before I was a pastor, I was a student pastor. In the first ministry, uh, Jane Ellen and I were at a small church. Uh, we only had a handful of students. Um, three of those students came from the same family because they were triplets. Uh, two boys and one girl. The girl's name was Kristen. 
And Kristen uh, liked the word like. Like, she like said like, like all the time, like. And I remember that one time I was doing a teaching and I have no idea what the teaching was. And Kristen raised her hand because she had something to say. Now, automatically, I knew this had to be riveting. And so I stopped the teaching and I said, yes, yes, Kristen, what is it? And she went, uh, like, have you ever wondered, like, after a baby is born, it like immediately starts dying? And I did the same thing that you're doing. And I sat there and I said to myself, uh, Kristen, that, that is one of the most morbid things I've ever heard. But it's true, isn't it? Why? Because of the devastating effect of Adam's action. Paul says that death reigned. Death reigned from Adam to Moses. Now, why does he say that? He says that because the law was given through the person of Moses. And, and, and Paul makes a statement in our passage where he says that, that sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Interesting statement. Because that phrase taken into account literally means invoiced. Sin is not invoiced where there is no law. I've never thought about this until this past week. But the law is like an itemized bill that you get at Lowe's or Home Depot or you get at a restaurant or you get at a grocery store. When you look at that itemized bill, it spells out everything that you purchased and the cost that, that was charged to you. In the very similar way, that's what the law is. The law is an itemized bill. It's an invoice that God sent us to show us just how sinful we are. And Paul says that even during the period between Adam and Moses, there was still sin and there was still death all of that is evidence of the original sin that is given to every descendant of Adam now for curious minds if you're wondering how much time spanned between Adam and Moses the most conservative estimate is 2500 years the most conservative estimate. And that comes from somebody who is a young earth person. If you're an old earth person, it could be 2,500 billion years. I don't know whatever age you want to put on it. But if you're a young earth guy, then it, 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 it at least has to be 2,500 years. And in 2,500 years, that's a lot of people and that's a lot of death. And people still died at a 100% rate, even between Adam and Moses, just as, as, as frequently as people die from Moses until Jesus and from Jesus until us. Everybody dies at a 100% rate. Why is that? Because of the devastating effects of Adam's action, sin reigned, death reigned. Which by the way, this is a rabbit, but I think it's meaty, so I'm gonna chase it, okay? I think this is a great argument against evolution. Evolution says that creatures and creation need to be made perfect the longer it goes. That if evolution is true, that creatures will be made more perfect. And the reality is we are not made more perfect. We are just as sinful today as Adam ever was. We are equally, utterly, completely sinful. So that in Genesis chapter six, verse five, every inclination of the heart is evil. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse nine, that the heart 
is a despicable place. It's beyond all cure. Who can understand it? We've got a sin problem. We've got a heart problem. We're all guilty of it. And why is that? Because of the devastating effects of condemnation because of our first daddy, our first parent. We're all descendants of Adam. And because of original sin, we have a craving towards a sinful rebellion against God. Oh, but we're in a contrast right now, right? So I said that that Adam, his effect is a devastating condemnation. But Jesus, (laughs) glorious salvation, that one righteous act from the one God-man, brings life to all who believe. Once again, this is a so much more argument that if, that if the damage could be done by Adam, then the glorious restoration can only be done by God. And it's Jesus, the perfect God-man, fully God and fully human. He came to die as your substitute on your cross. He was buried in your grave and he was raised to give you life. And the moment you trust in him, you have glorious salvation. I thought you might get more excited, but that's okay. You still have more opportunity before we get done. Look at verse 18 with me. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. Now, if you're thinking about this in a constructive, critical way, you ask yourself, Paul, why did you use the word all on both sides of the equation. I understand that all are condemned because of the effect of Adam's sin. But you also said that all men are made alive and justified because of the righteous action of Jesus. Paul, are you saying that all men are gonna be saved? Paul, are you a universalist? And the answer is no. I love what John Calvin said as he examined this verse. He said, for the apostle Paul, common grace is offered to all, but it's applied to only the redeemed. I've heard many theologians say it this way. The death of Jesus is sufficient for the salvation of the world, but it's applied only to those who believe. It has the power to save any lost sinner. Can I get an amen? It has the power to save a sinful wretch like you and a sinful wretch like me. And if by God's grace, he can save us through one righteous action of the one God-man, Jesus Christ, if he can save me, then he can save anybody. It is powerful enough to seek and to save the lost, but it's only applied. To those who believe, Paul has made a powerful, robust argument that the only way that we're justified is through faith. All you have to do is look at Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified. We are declared innocent, not just forgiven of sin, but declared innocent. We are robed with the righteous actions and deeds of Christ by faith. Jesus is powerful enough to save anybody. But his righteousness is only applied to those who believe. All throughout this 10-verse passage, this is a scripture passage about grace. The word grace is mentioned five times in 10 verses, twice in verse 15, once in verse 17, once in verse 20, and once in verse 21. On five occasions, Paul says, this is a story of the gospel of grace. Because 
Just as the one trespass of the one man brought death to all mankind, so the one act of righteousness by the one God-man brings life for all who believe. And that, my friends, is grace. So where death reigned, now by faith, grace reigns. Look at the ending argument, verse 21. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You and I are saved because of the amazing grace of God displayed perfectly in Jesus Christ. All of us are descendants of Adam. What does that mean? One trespass from one man brings death to all mankind. But one act of righteousness by the one God-man brings life to all who believe. Donald Gray Barnhouse was telling the story of a pastor who was trying to convince a young lad about the truthfulness of the gospel of grace. The pastor asked the young man, um, hold out both your hands with palms upward. Your left hand symbolizes you. Your right hand symbolizes Jesus. And then Barnhouse said that the pastor took a book, plopped it into the left hand of the boy, and said, that book represents all of your sin, past, present, and future. And the full weight of your sin is on you. But at Calvary, God flipped the script. And that pastor, taking that young man's hand, flipped it onto the right side and took away the left hand. He said, son, I want you to see now that all the weight of your sin is squarely on Jesus and not on you. He then proceeded to quote 2 Peter, that Jesus bore in his body our sin on the tree. Isaiah declares that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Horatio Spafford said it right. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. This is a passage about God's amazing grace. And in this passage, the apostle Paul is comparing and contrasting the first Adam and the second Adam. I've got to take my seat, but before I do, can I just tell you the differences between Adam and Jesus? In Adam, there's condemnation. In Jesus, there's salvation. In Adam, there's there's the curse. In Jesus, there's reverse of the curse. In Adam, there is disobedience. In Jesus, there is obedience. In Adam, there is death. In Jesus, there is life. In Adam, there's a thief who got kicked out of the garden. In Jesus, he said to the thief, today, you'll be with me in paradise. In Adam, there's the introduction of sin. In Jesus, there's the forgiveness of sin. In Adam, there's complete and utter failure. In Jesus, there's complete and utter faithfulness. In Adam, there is guilt. In Jesus, 
there is grace. So amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. And grace has brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Church, I came this morning to tell you that when I was conceived and when I was born, I was a descendant of Adam. I was sinful to the core, top to bottom, inside out. I don't even know if I was a beautiful bundle of sin. I was just a bundle of sin. But there came a day when God's grace invaded my life. There came a day when by faith I responded and trusted in the good news of the gospel. And on that day, both then and now and forevermore, I am now a descendant of the King. I'm a descendant of Jesus Christ. I have now been clothed in his righteousness and my story can be your story. So this morning I've got to ask you, to whom do you belong? Are you just a descendant of Adam? Or are you a descendant of Jesus? Have you trusted in the work of Christ that his action is a gift to you? It's not anything you can earn, it's nothing you deserve, but by faith you receive that gift and the effect of that gift is grace reigning in your life. Have you received this gift? If you have, then you've been adopted into God's family. You're a son and a daughter of the great king. And Jesus rules and reigns in your life. Friend, if you've never trusted Jesus as your savior, then you're stuck under Adam's curse. And today, God in Christ can reverse the curse. Today, he can set you free. We're gonna sing a song. We want you to come forward. If you've never trusted Jesus, please come and receive him by faith. But maybe many of you have trusted Christ. But maybe there's somebody that's pretty close to you who's still a descendant of Adam. You may call that person spouse, son, daughter, co-worker, classmate, friend. And maybe this morning you, Christian, just need to come and pray and say, God, please, help my friend, help my family member to receive the good gift of salvation that's only made possible in Jesus Christ and it can only come by faith, please, please. Because God, we know that the one trespass of the one man brings death to all mankind. But the one act of righteousness by the one God-man brings life to anyone, anyone, anyone who believes. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation we pray that you will speak and that we will respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.